Hi, and welcome back to the Apology Podcast. I'm Jesse Pearson, the founder and editor of Apology Magazine. Today's guest is the writer, musician, dancer, choreographer, filmmaker, and artist Brontez Purnell. Brontez um, has been an incredibly active and prolific person going back to his roots in in punk rock in the early 2000s, um, back when he made a zine called Fag School and was a member of the um, queer electro-punk party band Gravy Train. Uh, Make sure that if you write down that band name, you include four exclamation points at the end. So, um, so yeah, Brontez has a new book out now. It came out this week. It's called 100 Boyfriends, and it's a short novel of interlinked stories about relationships, sex, and drugs. It's very funny and very moving, and I highly recommend it. Uh, two of his earlier books, um, Johnny Would You Love Me If My Dick Were Bigger and Since I Laid My Burden Down are also excellent. Uh, in fact, in 2018, he won the Whiting Award for fiction for the latter, for Since I Laid My Burden Down. Um, if you want to see some of the dance side of what Brontez does, and you definitely should, look up his film called Free Jazz. It's at his website. Uh, it's also on YouTube. It's like 20 minutes long, and it includes all kinds of amazing movement. Uh, and then for a taste of Brontez's filmmaking, you can see his short 100 Boyfriends Mixtape Part 2 on the Criterion Collection app and the original 100 Boyfriends film on the website of the film distro Naked Sword. Uh, And Brontez just put out a great tape uh, of new music. It's called White Boy Music. It's under his own name. It's on the label Post Present Medium. You can find that on Bandcamp, I'm sure. Um, And I hope you can also find stuff by Brontez's band, The Younger Lovers, on there too. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's just kind of dizzying how much Brontez does and how it all is really good. We talk about some dance world stuff, um, some dance world history later in the interview. And just for those of you who don't know and want some context when it comes up, the Judson, J-U-D-S-O-N, was a, um, a highly influential modern and postmodern dance theater in New York in the early 1960s. And Grand Union was another dance collective that included Judson alumni, and that was active in the 70s, uh, the early to mid-70s, I think. It ended in, like, 76. But any reading um, that you can find and do about both of those groups is well worth your time. Um, Oh, and also, I accidentally called the dancer, choreographer, writer, and filmmaker Yvonne Rayner's memoir. I mistitled it in the interview. I say, feelings aren't facts like as in the lame Alcoholics Anonymous precept. Um, But Rainer's book is actually called Feelings Are Facts, which is much better and which I agree with um, much more. Uh, And finally, right when Brontez and I started talking, the Santa Ana winds here in Los Angeles knocked out my internet. So I had to switch us to a recorded cell phone call. So I'm sorry for the reduced quality of this episode. Um... But Brontes is great, and he has so much to say that I think the quality of his conversation makes up for the substandard audio. So, yeah, here we go. Brontes Purnell on the Apology Podcast. So what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I'm actually reading my own book. (laughs) How do you like it? Oh, my God, it's, like, genius. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) 
like totally my opus. Also, um, I'm reading the newest book that I'm writing, and um, I'm reading Maya Duran like fucking her film essays. Oh wow, I didn't know that she wrote. Oh my god, does she write? She definitely writes. You can tell she did a lot of speed. Really? Ooh, I like that in a writer. totally (laughs) so like what are you gleaning from the Maya Duran essays I'm like writing kind of um I'm writing this like new this new sci-fi book and in it the protagonist main companion is like this like Russian Jewish mystic this like modern Russian Jewish mystic because it's set in mid-century and I was like who who could fall under that? And I'm like, okay, yeah, Maya Duran. Like, and yeah. some of her essays is like super funny, but all of her writing, I remember, cause I was a dance student. I like studied like African dance. Like I studied Catherine Dunham technique. And, you know, by the extension of that, you, you read Maya Duran and her book, Divine Horseman. And I remember just thinking like, damn like i have this is the most words i've ever heard to describe something beautiful but also just like the most crazy padded circular Mm. divine talk and i just i love it i like love how camp it is and uh, i later found out that she had written whole essays on film um as part of her like academic search or whatever her academic research so I went and found that, and it's like, it is a fucking hoot. It's like, it's all written in the 40s. It's like crazy. I, I highly recommend it, actually. It's like kind of a fun romp. You know, I've always been kind of obsessed with her and kind of her her whole, yeah, her whole shtick. And also she's someone who's really interesting because I remember, like, studying about her in my earlier 20s and just, like, just you know, her having this really prolific body of work. But then I was realizing that she she was only 44 when she died. Oh, wow. How did she die? Do you know? She, okay, so she, again, she was a speed freak. Uh, well, she was, I don't think she was, like, intentionally a speed freak, but, you know, back in the day, they had those Dr. Phil goods. And so mm-hmm. they would pretend that they were giving you B12 shots but really there was like amphetamines in it. And I think there's a couple of people in that company that like got into that. Cause I know Eartha Kitt, Eartha Kitt, who was also part of the Catherine Dunham dance company, she fell prey to a Dr. Phil good, but she eventually, I mean, obviously there was some like mental issues in there too, but she basically died of malnutrition. She complained of getting old and that she couldn't get her work funded anymore and stuff. And she, yeah, like kind of starved and had a brain hemorrhage. It was really oh intense. gosh, that's so sad. And she was yeah, she was only forty four. Yeah, and now that I'm, I remember thinking that she was just like so ancient when I first started studying her, and I was like, wait, like she was totally <laughs> close to my age. Like fuck, like she'd be a year younger than me. God, I feel like Maya Duran was one of these people who, when you get a liberal arts education, you're definitely going to see meshes of an afternoon, right? But then, like you used to, you. So I think for maybe people in our age group, sure. But I don't think. I feel like a lot of that, like her, as like mother of like American experimental film. I don't know. I'll bring that name up, and I think people ten years younger than me are just like, I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. That's too bad. 
What do you think, like, what are, what are some sort of lessons that you've taken from her as an artist? Or, like, what do you like about what she has to say about film and her essays? Oh, she just gives, like, it's just, you know, she used so much word padding, but she's essentially saying, like, all the, you know, like, the same things we say about punk and DIY. She's just like, you know, your mistakes here will not get you fired. Um, mm. She's like, there's, there's, there's freedom here to create. What's her famous, her most famous quote is like, I make my movies for what Hollywood spends on lipstick, you know? Nice. Um, yeah, yeah. She's essentially just like, she's giving you like DIY filmmaker, but like in the 40s. And then when you think of like all the techniques she used, like the quick cut, like the kind of quick cut um, whole menagerie of stream of consciousness thoughts kind of belongs to her. And what I think mm -hmm. is funny is, like, when there's all these conversations of TikTok, Maya Duran never comes up. But oh, what a connection, she, yeah. She's she's who made that, you know. She's who put that energy into the universe first. That's incredible. I never would have thought of that, but you're totally right. I love it. Does she, like, write about her own film philosophy and techniques, or does she write about, like, popular film or the industry? Or both? Oh, it's all of it. It's, it's all of it. Like that's that's all of it. It's um. Oh yeah, it's called Essential Duran Collected Writings on Film by Maya Duran. Oh, right it's, off the bat, you've given me a great recommendation. That's awesome. You mentioned Eartha Kitt too, and she has always fascinated me, but I don't know much about her life. Have you read about her, like biographies or autobiographies about Eartha? Oh God, I know everything about Eartha Kitt. I have her tattooed on my stomach. No way. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about her. Like, what are some of your favorite things about her? Well, you know, I think it was just like being a young dancer and studying like um, Catherine Dunham technique. Catherine Dunham was like the mother of black American dance. And, you know, her just having this kind of this dance school in New York, like in the like 40s and 50s and how many cool people was there like there's always there's those pictures of like James Dean and Eartha Kitt mm -hmm. taking class together because they were best friends Maya Duran was her personal was Catherine Dunlop's personal secretary you know mm -hmm. which is how she got to make Divine Horsemen and stuff and fucking um what was it Marlon Brando he played drums in the company sometimes like oh wow it's just, I don't know. I feel like back when, like, being a cool kid was, like, a smaller cult. You know what I'm saying? And so it's kind of amazing yeah. how many brain stuff comes out of one place. Whereas these days, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's all kind of over the place. It's a very, you really got to pick the record cool. store these days. I get yeah, I think everyone's like, pretending to be. <laughs> right. I think, like, it's maybe because... The reason it was a smaller group back then was because there was more of a price to pay for being quote unquote cool. I mean, there was really kind of a conformity that you were going to be outcast from if you chose to be a part of this kind of shit. Oh, no. Like, it's like, no, for sure. I think about, yeah, I think about it all the time. When I think about Maya Duran's death, too, I often think, like, yeah, like, it had to be fucking crazy to be her, like. She probably yeah. sounded like a fucking wingnut to people. But, I mean, that's the price you pay for being a prophet, right? Eartha Kitt was from the South, and then I think she was just, like, this young girl in New York, and Catherine Dunham's makeup assistant was looking for the Mac store. And they went – She the woman randomly saw a teenage Eartha Kitt and was like, 
hey, like, how do I, how do I get to the Mac store? And Eartha was like, why are you going to the Mac store? And she was like, oh, I'm getting makeup for Catherine Dunham. And fucking Eartha was like a homeless teenager. She was having problems with her family. And she was just like, she had read about Catherine Dunham in Ebony or something. And she was like, if you take me to meet Catherine Dunham, then I'll take you to the Mac store. And so Mm. that's how she got to that company. And so she like, yeah, she, but something happened where like Eartha Kitt, like I think started sleeping with some of Catherine Dunham's men or something. Like there was some type of jealousy going on. And so Catherine Dunham fires her in Paris, like sometime in the fifties. And so Eartha Kitt's just like this black American girl stuck in Paris in the fifties. Like, how much more fucking romantically mid-century, like, artist can you get, right? So she starts this nightclub act. She starts this nightclub act in Paris, and that is how she essentially becomes Eartha Kitt. So getting fired by Catherine Dunham is what kind of made Eartha Kitt, like, the Eartha Kitt that she became known as. Yeah, she has, like, these crazy stories about just, like, living in Paris and trying to get engagements at these clubs. And she was like, yeah, like, she's like, I had one croissant, a slab of butter, and two cups of coffee a day. Like, that's what I ate for months. Oh, my God. There's her book. It was called Tuesday's Child for a lot of years. Then it was called Confessions of a Sex Kid. But she said that before she would go to work, before she would go on stage, um, there was some company that where a doctor would come and give her B12 shots, but she said mm. she knew she felt fucking crazy on stage. She was just like, I knew that something was wrong with what he was giving me. And she eventually found out that that man was putting amphetamines in the shots. And if you go and look at some of the older, there are some of the Eartha Kit performances that are on, um, that are on YouTube, some from the 50s, you can totally tell that she has spun the fuck out. Like, just she wired. insane. <laughs> yeah, but... Wow. So I've been rereading this book. Um, it's a memoir of, like, Hollywood in this era called Laid Bare by a guy named John Gilmore. Have you ever heard of that? Uh-uh. He was, like, kind of a boyfriend of James Dean, and he hung out with her in Eartha Kitt in this moment. It was It's really, really tawdry stuff. It's a great book. I, I'll send you a link. It's uh, It's got very fun, salacious things in it about both of those people. I mean, like, what else would they be? Like, I could not. <laughs> you like, cool. I was like, part of me, too, is just like, yeah, like, these two creepy bisexual friends, like, inviting you over for cocktails, like, in the 50s in California. Like, God, can you imagine how lucky you would be if, like, Eartha Kitt and James Dean tried to lure you into a three-way, like, how special is that? Like, <laughs> You'd have to, like, that was, that's your last three-way. There's no topping it ever. I mean, pretty fucking much. Like, oh, yeah, you just end your whole sexual career. You don't even need to ever have sex again, really. Hopefully not. Although, I, I some of the stuff about James Dean makes me, leech, makes me think that maybe he wasn't very functional, probably because of a lot of the drugs. And he was a real freak. You know, he was, um, he liked having cigarettes put out on him. That was one of his kinks. Not to kink shame. Oh, my God. And so he predated the germs burn. Totally. He was the first germs burn in Hollywood. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so special. What the fuck is it with faggots and cigarettes? Ew. Like, (laughs) pain. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's crazy. But you meant, I was actually going to ask you, I don't know why, but it occurred to me to ask you if you, like, read or ever thought about writing, like, genre fiction, like sci-fi. And so you just says a minute ago that you are writing a sci-fi novel now. Yeah, totally. What's like, have you read a lot of sci-fi or is this kind of new territory for you? 
Um, it's new territory. What's it about? Can you tell me? Um, I mean, we know that there's it, a mystic, it, like a mystic character, right? It's set. It's set like in the '60s and '70s, like in rural Alabama, and it's about a family of psychics at war with one another. It's called "The Body Writes a Book." The body, sorry, the body what? The body writes a book. That's a really good log line. Like that, that could like sell a TV series. I think right off the bat. I would hope so. I'm really broke. Um, (laughs) 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 What is it like? How do you feel having this? Because this is—is this your first book with like like a hundred boyfriends? I mean, your first book with like um, like a sort of like more establishment publishing house, FSG. Um. Yes. Totally. How's the experience different this time around? It is the most produced piece of art I've ever made in my entire life. Like where there was there was kind of hands at every hands at every step being like, What are we doing here? How are we doing it? How are we moving this forward? But you know, I've never I don't think I've ever really had to examine how much making DIY art has damaged me. Um, but I got to learn finally, so <laughs> Was, um, what do you mean damaged you? Like made it made it hard to collaborate? Or like almost like <laughs> in a way, yeah, because it's like when so much of it is like built off of like your own instincts and your own intuition, there's kind of right. something hard about someone coming in and being like, no, I actually know more about this than you. Like this is how this has to work. And like kind of trusting that too or being able to submit yeah. to that. And so. Just in a way, you know, or if like you feel like, I don't know, like oh, oh, you ever had is like your own aesthetic. Cause even like with like feminist press, like, or with the first book, Johnny, would you love me if my dick were bigger? Yeah. Like I put that out with like Rudos and Rubes and that was just like, that was like, just like this DIY book. I remember I got, I got the Radar Residency, and I finished that book in Mexico, you know, with just, like, some peer editing here and there. But I got to make whatever choice I wanted to make. And then when Feminist Press asked for um, – when Feminist Press asked for Since I Laid My Burn Down, it pretty much was like that, too. I actually – I wrote that book on my porch one summer. Like, Mm -hmm. I was just, like, I got this – grant to make this documentary and so i had like money and just time on my hands to just really sit and write something just like concentrate on it you know and like that was written like that i got like a thousand dollar advance for both those books and i only got the thousand dollar advance from johnny when i when feminist press picked it up oh yeah and so it was like you know that's so it's just how mon- those things go. The money's probably better this time around, I would hope. Well, no, yeah, like, it's so um, it's so different. Art is so different from, like, regular capitalism, too. Because, like, mm. in any other situation, like, you ever notice how the jobs that pay you the shittiest have the most surveillance or whatever? It's always, like, when you're, like, you know, mopping Taco Bell or, like, but yeah. the prep cook somewhere that you have, like, the most people, the most middle management that can just come in and fuck with your entire life, the most yeah. set of things that can go wrong, you know, for the most least amount of money, but, like, the job where you make, like, 
you know, 28 bucks an hour or whatever, and you're doing something, quote, unquote, more important, that's like when you get to leave when you want, you get to, like, freaking kind of, <laughs> like, your own, like, you can do whatever you want. Like, well, it's totally different in, like, I think, like, p- at least publishing because, you know, where I made the least money, I got to make the most decisions for myself. But the second I started making money, there were more hands telling me what to do. So Yeah, it's the inverse of how it usually is, right? It's kind of weird. But also, I like, I don't know, I like, at this point, I like, I don't ever want to do anything one way forever, you know? So Yeah. And it's cool, the stuff they're doing with you, like the FSG, like, I feel like there's a big publicity push. Like, this book, it seems to be, like, kind of getting talked about a lot, even though it's not out for, like, a couple of weeks more. You got a you got an Instagram filter, which is really fun. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I thought that was so funny. Like, and did that come from like the from the publishing house's like 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 PR department? Was it one of their ideas or something? It was my editor's idea. This um, Jackson Howard, um, who is oh my god, my editor. He's like the love of my life. He is so he is so funny. He's so funny. Um, did, did did you just meet him when this when you started working on this project with him, or had you known him beforehand? No, I like met him. Like I think he were he. This was a couple years ago. This was like 2017 or something. But he had read since I laid my burn down, and I think he got the Whiting Award. And then all of a sudden, it's like this little like this little like this little cute little like Jewish twink just all up in my DMs, just like, hey, how's it going? What's up? Got any books? <laughs> Hey, I went for a book place. Hey, let's party. And I was just like, I like this kid. This kid's got spunk. He's got spunk. Like, let's party. Spunk is important. If you know, it, it, it fueled a whole art career for me. <laughs> <laughs> so spunky is an adjective that you would own? Because spunky, I think people see as sort of like, like dismissive or something, you know, as a word. Oh, no. I just remember, oh, God, when I first moved here, just, like, uh, I moved to the Bay, like, 18 years ago. I think I was, like, 20 years old. I definitely was spunky, especially for just how much kind of crazy shit was going on. I remember this girl asked me to be in this art porn where, like, I was, like, fucked by this unicorn. And I just remember it being just, like, oh, my God, I'm going to be totally famous. This is great. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) So funky about it. Like, <laughs> I regret nothing. Yeah, that's a waste of time. But yeah, just so people know who haven't seen it, the, the thing I'm talking about, the Instagram filter, is a promotion for your book, which is called 100 Boyfriends. And it's like, which boyfriend are you? And it like names you after one of the boyfriends, like in the chapter titles, right? Yes, totally. I was thinking, like, what kind of boyfriend are you? Not using those chapter titles, but what are you like as a boyfriend? Or, like, what's your attachment Oh, my style? God. When I'm not being a completely clingy, needy piece of... When I'm not being a clingy, needy piece of shit, I'm basically ignoring you. Like, ask your uh-huh. fucking boyfriend. Especially when I'm in, like, deep creative <laughs> process. And, like, it's crazy. I'm, like, walking around in circles, like, smoking, talking to myself, erratically typing, like... Uh-huh. But then also I'm a really good lay, so it all balances out. It works out. So you're anxious slash avoidant. You're like both. Do you know Pretty much. at all? Have you, have you read about this stuff? It's like the it's like kind of trendy attachment style. No, I like avoid all modern like psych. You know what I'm saying? Psycho babble anything because it's just like 
I don't. I never seem to win in any of these like yeah. <laughs> these revelations. I just learned some new way in which I'm a completely hopeless human being, and I don't need to learn any more ways in which I'm hopeless. I think I. I think I have a handle on it. I've come to like. I've come to peace with it. So. Yeah. It kind of like it also just makes you want to read more. It's kind of a masochistic thing when people are telling you in a book like why you're a fuck up. You just want to learn more about why you're a fuck up. No, totally. Like if there wasn't such an economy in being a fuck up too, like Yeah. Yeah. There's never a book that's just like you're gonna you're as okay as you're gonna get. Like just ride that out. No one would buy that. No one want you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, people seek the other thing out because everybody thinks they're fucked up, so they want to read a book that helps them understand why they're fucked up. I like to read stuff like attachment theory the same way I like to read stuff like um, astrology or like do tarot or like do runes. It's like I don't really believe in it, but I think it's like fun to like self-analyze based on what you get from it. You know what I mean? No, yeah. It it just it it kind of creates like you know any type of like weirdly like sociological like blueprint for something which is you know we all should be examining these things you know and all these like kind of scenarios should be painted in our head as a way to like look at things and you know build structures as to why so i think i don't know i definitely think it's fun i love tarot i fucking love reading about astrology i like i don't understand people who are like so fucking so serious as to where they're just like, I would never intellectually intertangle with such blah, 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 blah. And it's always like the most fucked up, like tight booty asshole people. It's just like, actually, you could you could sit down and read a book about astrology all day and just loosen the fuck up. You know, it might even make you more uh, yeah. fun. Like, come on. Like, well, those are the people who are afraid of self-reflection, you know? Pretty much. Pretty much. I want to um I want to talk about your childhood, which is a good shift from like tarot and, and, and self help. I think. <laughs> no, I mean, well, first I just want to know: Are you ready? Buckle. Well, I should buckle up, I guess. No, I want to know um like what kind of readers your parents were. What were their books? Okay, so my mom, my mom was really, really, really into like just all classic black American, like, literature, you know? She, like, she made me read, like, Native Son in, like, fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. She's way too early to read a book like that, I think, but still, in Langston Hughes' poetry, she had, like, she had every fucking book of Langston Hughes' poetry, like, that there was. And so I always, I would just sit there and, like, I would sit there and read I would sit there and read that a lot. Like, and as his child, I knew his poems like the back of my hand, not so much anymore. She also mm. was like a drama person because she, um, she would put on the annual Black History Month play in the town I grew up in. And this is Triana, Alabama. And every year she would do that poem where it was like, it was a Langston Hughes poem. She would dress up like a slave woman and I would be dressed all shabbily and like sitting on like the stage and she would recite mother to son to me. Like that Langston Hughes poem. Like we did this, we did that for years too. And it was like, 
you know, I think it's, I always forget that fact, but she was like, she was very, 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 she was very literary oriented. In fact, she, in, through my childhood, I remember her writing a book. She was always scribbling in a notepad that she was like writing a book. Like that book is still in her like nightstand dresser. Like, you know, it's like written in pencil. It's all faded. I don't even know. Like I'll be trying to read it and can't, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, she often says that like, you know, me writing, she's often like, you get that from me. Whereas my dad was totally into music. My dad was like a total mm. music guy. My dad didn't read much. I don't remember him having lots of books, but like every fucking badass record like he had, like whenever he'd take me deer hunting, he'd just be like, it'd be like Fleetwood Mac, The Police. Bruce Springsteen, yeah. Spy and the Family Stone, like Jimi Hendrix, like he would go off on this tangent where he would listen to like all along the Watchtower, like fucking twelve times in a row, like in the car, <laughs> oh just God. like you know, like really awesome shit. And like some people like often think like, oh, Bron says you're from Alabama, you have like these like black Alabama parents, like it must be so conservative, they must have a hard time with you. Like not at all. Like my father, my father did not give a fuck about, like, he wasn't a sports kind of guy. Like, when mm-hmm. my fucking, when I handed my father, like, my LPs, like, my band's LPs, and he saw that I was on the cover of, like, records, it was, like, the equivalent of, like, him having the, like, his son having the Heisman Trophy. Like, yeah. he was like, yes, like, he's like, my son is a fucking musician. My son plays rock and roll, you know? Like, when he died, like, all my LPs just lined up perfectly on his um, dresser. Like that's the only neat thing in his room. So, so cool. Like yeah. my, my parents, I am definitely, you know, as much as I don't like really, I think, think about it a whole lot. Like I am definitely like the fucking that midway point of like all their kind of, their artistic kind of wishes, you know, I think just, I think my parents, if, if they had not been, if they had just had, like, a little more access, like, they're both very, yeah. like, rural Alabama, like, people. But I think both of them, if if they had been born anywhere else, like, around more of the hub of a city somewhere, they both totally would have just been artists, you know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. They, yeah, like, but they seeing them, I definitely, I, I feel like I definitely lived out a bunch of their dreams. Has your mother read your writing? No, she like. <laughs> it could be a little challenging That's for a mom. About her, like, it could be a little challenging for a mom. Maybe some of the subject matter. Yeah, she doesn't. I definitely. She's seen me like. I know she's seen me like suck dick on camera, or like I was in this movie. I want your love. It was like this indie rock porn or whatever. And on mm. the fucking preview, in the preview. There's me, like, giving head, like, in a snippet of it. I think she accidentally saw that and ruined her life. And she oh, definitely no. saw Gravy Train back in the day. But, like, the oh, writing, wow. I think I think she's just like, no, I don't want to see my little prince like that. <laughs> so. so your mom came out to Gravy Train show. Just so people who don't know Gravy Train, uh, Brontez, what, you were, like, the go-go dancer for Gravy Train, basically, right? Yeah, totally. I, like, go-go dancer, and then I played guitar, yeah. And your mom came to Gravy Train shows? Yeah, like, well, once. She came once when we were in Atlanta. Wow. I can't imagine what a mom would think of a Gravy Train show, but it's really cool that she came. It was a different time then, too. This was like, gosh, this was 2005, I think? 2004, 2005. 2005. How was it different? Like, what do you mean? I just, it's, you know, 
you know, it was just categorically really fucking different. Like, now that we're closer to 20 years away from that, like, yeah. just, yeah, just, like, being on tour, being able to have a band like Gravy Train, like, I don't, I don't think, I'll say it like this, I would not show up to, like, Nebraska and dance around in a jock strap at some fucking music venue in Trump's America. Yeah, we've moved I backwards in a lot. Not something I yeah. would have done in the past four years. The fact that we spent the Bush era wilding that hard is actually kind of, like, amazing, to be honest. It is. It is. I don't know why that was, like, something that was – culturally, yeah, there was a kind of a free moment in some ways for people like us. And, you know, I think, like, a lot of, like, artist movements or whatever, I think I think especially then we kind of overestimated our importance or, like, what we thought the outcome could be of, you know – you know, art and activism. I think some of the, I don't know, I feel like I definitely saw the limits of what art and activism could do. In those like how far it can actually take take you and take, take, take society and culture, you mean? No, for sure, yeah. When I read 100 Boyfriends, are you generally the narrator or the main character? How much of you is the I? And then when it's like someone like this kid, um, like Cortez in that story, um, uh, what's it with like Ed, Ed's name and pencil on the wall or something? That's the title of the story. Is that like is uh-huh. that you or is that is that partly you? Are you every are you every sort of protagonist in the book? I, no, I need not be every protagonist in the book. I'll say it like that. Um, these these are definitely like composites, and mm-hmm. I don't know. There's it's a, kind of a problem with my writing. Really, is that like you know, in, pe- in order for people to understand it or people to feel like they can relate to it, it's like, it has to be my story. It has to be memoir. And I don't know. I, like, have issues with that, or I think that that's, like, kind of, like, it's a really kind of lazy way to read fiction in general. And plus, also, one thing that is, like, totally noticeable is that whenever um, whenever you're from any marginalized community or whatever, like, woman, black, gay whatever like people yeah. are always wanting like your narratives are always confined to memoir it must uh, it must mm. essentially be like something that you're confessing in order for it to have value or be real because essentially the only people smart enough to write fiction are white men right like yeah 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 you know what i'm saying like how many people I went do. up to the white man who wrote memoirs of a geisha and was like so how much of this is you like yeah of course <laughs> i mean like yeah the white or like the white woman who wrote american dirt like no one ever goes up to her and it's just like oh, you know like, how much of this is you and definitely you not. know if this is really those the are extreme examples though for sure right yeah, like, but in order, if this is like the real, this is the real test of if your work is authentic or not, it's really, it's, uh, I feel like I have that, that, that question both asked, you know, in a kind of like really um, ergonomic way like you just did, but sometimes I have that question. It almost feels as if it's being weaponized against me. I totally if get that. that makes any sense? Yeah, it and does. So, it does. And so sometimes I'm just like, you know, also I'm just like, it's like fiction. Like there's plenty of, there's plenty of ways in which, you know, I, I, I don't always have access to why those characters are making those decisions. 
there's plenty of decisions that characters make in every book that I write that I personally would never do, but for the sake of moving plot or drama along, they must. Yeah. Even if I'm writing about something, even if I take something from something real, it's very rare or almost, it's highly unlikely that I'm going to write everything for note, note for note. Like there always has to be a filter or a remix or maybe a character is speaking through another, I don't know, the tongue of another character or yeah. the place is so manipulated. The points of an assertion are so manipulated in how I write that, I mean, I write fiction. I get that. And, I, and and also, real life doesn't translate one-to-one to fiction or drama. It needs to go through filters to become something that works as fiction, I think. But I think the, the reason that I was asking that question regarding you in this book is because, and podcast listeners, my, my, my listeners are really tired of hearing me talk about this, but it was kind of the same way I feel about Dennis Johnson's Jesus Son or Cookie Mueller's um, Walking Through Clearwater in a Pool Painted Black, where the eye does feel close to what I understand to be the writer to be in some ways in terms of their like lived experience. So I just wonder specifically in those instances, um, like where, like how much, like what the ratios are. But um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I never thought of it that way. And it's, it's, it's really, it's kind of like eye opening for me. No. Yeah. Like it's, um, I mean, I think that it's just like from anybody from like who would understand, like, like, I don't know, like any type of community or art community I come from. It's like, it's really a composite of like, you know, the experience of me and friends of mine. Um, but then also, honestly, like I only ever use I as a magic trick, you know, Mm. because when someone reads I, in their subconscious or wherever they're thinking, I, they are the person in that story. It's never about yeah. me. It's to get other people to identify more starkly. Do you understand? I do. I do. And that's another perspective yeah. on, I hadn't thought of the first person that way. Um, and it's really interesting to me. I think that my tendency is to look at the eye as like, I'm sitting down and being told something um but then i think about the, like how it feels when i'm reading and yeah i do put myself inside the eye um that's a really yeah i like that way of looking at it yeah 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 are there i mean i just mentioned a couple of writers off the top of my head that kind of like felt in a way in in, in it, there's some kinship between those books i mentioned and, and your book to me are there any writers that you feel yourself like in the lineage of for sure for sure i oh gosh there's so many right I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Don't tell me the answer, but why, why don't you want to talk about it? What makes you want to avoid that question, that answer? Cause, um, that's like, there's so many, there's so many like rabbit holes to like fall, definitely like fall in. Um, huh. and also I'll say it like this. I am, I am heavily influenced by a bunch of racist, alcoholic, white mid-century writers. Got they it. Just, they're like the as much as like I could sit here all day and just be like Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, blah blah blah. There's this yeah. other filthy part of my soul that like contains too many horrible white people. <laughs> and so, <laughs> as far as things I picked up growing up, do you know what I mean? So I kind of yeah. always am just like, let me just 
keep that to myself and not spread that into the world. I get that. Is then that that that's probably in large part a function of like that's what most of us are given to read from day one, right? That's that's like our early reading DNA is a lot of um, those guys. No, for sure. Like definitely for sure. For sure, for sure. Who are some writers that you might think of as like who who do you click with when you were like 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 burgeoning queer identity wise like as a teenager or something like that or like when you were becoming a punk rocker like who were some of the writers from outside of the racist white man world that you first clicked with and I don't mean canonical people canonical people like Lance Hughes either I mean maybe people who felt more um, like contemporary to you or speaking in your language you know the language of your time or something does that make sense. Um, I feel like I just threw a lot of word salad at you, but there was a question in there. Yeah, no, no, I totally did. I remember, I remember, I definitely remember like this teacher in sixth grade. This teacher gave me. That's where I read like the bell jar. But when I was in fifth grade, a teacher handed me a bunch of Sylvia Plath poems. Which I don't, I look back now and I was like, why? There had to be no other reason to hand a young boy a book of Sylvia Plath other than you thought he was gay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like such a stark choice. And like, mm-hmm. I was just like, it just, that, that definitely left an impression. Um, I remember when I was 18 reading Mike Albo's Hornito, My Love Life. Mm. And yeah. it was, I was so scared. I was still kind of, I didn't really, I was living in Chattanooga at the time and I was 18. I had just moved away from Alabama. It was like kind of the first time I was on my own. And it, I had never, most gay writing that I had seen had been in like magazines and it was just like this section of gayness I didn't really function with. He was like kind of like the first like gay punk or outsider kind of writer that I had read that like totally I think clicked with my experience or kind of where I placed myself. Like, I think reading him when I was 18 left a huge, yeah, it, like, had left a huge indent on my kind of orbit, that much mm-hmm. I can say. And then also, really just, like, a lot of, like, weird zines here and there. Like, yeah, zines mostly, just, like, from friends of mine. That, what were some of your favorites? Yeah. I remember you, you probably read Puberty Strike back in the day, right? By Seth Bogart. I loved that. Oh, uh, it's no. Oh, me and Seth had been, me and Seth had been pen pals since we were like 16 or 17. Like we met wow. on some Kill Rockstar's message board. And so I was in Alabama and he was in Arizona and we would mail each other like zines back and forth, like, and make each other mixtapes. For sure his writing, his writing and his kind of whole style left it kind of like a huge mark on me um he was the first person i came out to actually how old were you was i i had to i think i want to say i was like 17 at the time yeah it had to be 17 was it just that you do was it just that you trusted him so much in, in terms of like shared world and experiences or was there something about the distance like the physical distance of where him being like across the country that made you comfortable too no he was 
No, I think he was just, he was the only other gay punk boy I knew. He was the first and for a second, the only other gay punk boy I knew that was like out and punk and gay. So it's, 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 it's extra complex coming out when you're a punk, isn't it? Because however progressive punk pretends to be, there is totally lingering like homophobia and prejudices inside the punk world, even in that moment when it was kind of like extra progressive on the, on the surface. Yeah. I like, and plus, I mean, realistically, I look at it now too. Like, I don't know what everyone was holding it back about. Cause really like that was a heyday. I feel like that day is long past. Most of like the queers, most of the queer kids I know are ravers. Like they are more like into like, electronic music than any kind of rock and roll anyone would play so yeah yeah me too and you're talking about like back when we were kids like in the 90s and early 2000s or um if you mean now like queer kids now are more ravers than punks i think now i think i think like I think rock and roll is definitely fucking dead as well as it as well it should be you know what i'm saying like it yeah. like over and over and over like rock and roll did not it never hit that critical reset button like even i don't know even like like the last couple of rock festivals i went to it is like the it's definitely a, a straight white dude thing whereas like yeah. anytime you go to see any electronic music event you are definitely more likely to see people of color you're definitely more likely to see women like those numbers are always balanced which kind of like I look back as a teen and I look back like at the early ethos of like, you know, disco versus punk, you know. And like when I was a kid, I was just like, yeah, punk music all the way. But it was just like if you go back and look at it, like punk, like so sh- kind of just mostly shitty fucking white dudes like disco. Yeah, like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like rock and roll has always had a fucking like kind of like diversity crisis. and But now these days it's just it's just not funny anymore. Like, it's like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I only, you know, even now, like when I make punk music, like I definitely do it only out of a sense of like family lineage. And like, I like make it like part of like my religion or religious practice or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I don't, I can't think of the last time I was like, Oh, like there's some rock and roll thing or click or whatever that I really have to be part of. I'm just kind of like, I'm just like to hell with all yeah. of it. <laughs> I see totally in punk, especially it's very strange because punk when it started was a lot more theatrical, you know what I mean? And then like kind of hardcore started this, you know, spiral into just like extreme, like straight masculinity. But like when you look at early punk rockers, especially LA people, it was like, there was a lot of queer and theatricality stuff going on inside of it. I'm talking like early, you know? No, no, for sure. Like, there's, um, there was Sean, did you ever know of Sean Delier from the band Glue? I knew them, you know, through my 20s. They they passed away a couple years ago. Actually, Sean, Sean Delier was in the Funky Cold, the Tone Loke Funky Cold Medina video. Oh, wow. Where I never knew and I just watched. But, like, yeah, cool. like, but, like, Shondi was, like, Shondi was, like, parents were, like, amongst the first black people in the valley and Shondi was like a LA punk. Like, I think I was talking to Alice Bag about Shondi, and she was like, Yeah, we were amongst the first hundred, realistically, the first 36, like, punks in LA. 
wow. and was just like kind of talking about like that experience and stuff and like that's what all the la punks say they're just like when it first started it was like it was a bunch of weirdos it was a bunch of freaks it was a bunch of kids of color it was a bunch of gays then one day it was just like a wave of these fucking violent white boys there's always like it is it kind of makes this question of it's like when and who and why one gets access to feel angry about something and whenever fucking whenever a group of like young white men feel like they should be angry about something it always has the most like kind of devastating effects one way or another like <laughs> like it definitely yeah. leaves this particular stain that in no that no other group can do and so and like you know and what's funny too is like i don't know even like with a lot of like it's funny how many like old punk idols become like these conservatives too in their later years i know and so I they know. did they did everything to like this you know and they're used to destroy the social fabric of america and then intensely uphold it it's just like you have to understand my contention with punk these days like it was great when i was like a teenager but like now that i'm nearing 40 i'm just like who the fuck are these honkies like, <laughs> like, like there's yeah. definitely, i definitely have an eye roll but but it's especially gross when old punks turn into libertarians. You're not even like conservatives bad enough, but the libertarianism thing is even worse in a way because it's like conservatism like masquerading as something else, you know. But a lot of like old punk rockers become that. I think. I think it's one thing too. It's like if you like, you know, if you're amongst that first wave of like punk nihilism, and you watch a bunch of your friends die or whatever, and just all this crazy shit. I could see it like pushing you like into that, you know, but even still, yeah. it's just like, it's kind of fucking annoying. I could see it making you socially conservative, but like the political conservatism is a whole different, like, anyway, you know, I was just no, okay, no, for your, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. It's, I was just thinking also, but there there was a fun contingent, like the, the queer, I think more than anywhere else, LA, maintained a kind of uh, a kind of queerness in its in its punk rock i'm thinking of vaginal davis who came like after the hardcore shit right had already kind of exploded she she was a she was a figure on the scene for a while here do you are you familiar with her work you must be no i like interviewed vaginal cream davis um i interviewed vaginal cream davis for vice this summer like oh okay cool we had like a whole combo and bias yeah that was another one i remember like when i was like right as i was coming out i think this is maybe even before i like came out to seth like there was a punk in my town and this was probably this was like 97 or 98 but there was a punk in my town who had the maximum rock and roll queer issue from like 1992 and i remember right. it was like vaginal cream davis in this um, she was in a fucking a cop outfit, like a lady cop outfit. <laughs> yeah. Fucking Bruce LaBruce in the ass. And I remember just yeah. seeing this being like, who the fuck are these people? Like, I gotta, I gotta meet these people. Like, I gotta get to California. Like, it's gonna be all over when I get there if I don't get there yeah. like fast enough. It's funny too, I was talking to Bruce LaBruce this morning. I know Bruce from way back. How's he doing? He's a great writer too. Oh, no, he's cool. He's, like, working on, like, some photo book now and just, like, chilling. It's, like, 
I just want to say for anybody who doesn't know the work of Vaginal Davis, Vaginal Cream Davis, her writing is incredible. Like her actual, not not just her like music or performance work, but her writing writing is great and should definitely be sought out. I wish that she would write more or publish more. Maybe she's writing a lot and not publishing it. There are these little nods in 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 the book, um, like kind of like Easter eggs of like little lyrical moments that happen. Like there's one I noticed from X, and there's a Liz Fair. I mean, the book opens with a kind of a Liz Fair pull, you know. And um, there's the kid who tells on another kid's a dead kid, which is either Over the Edge or Nation of Ulysses, depending on how you want to look at it, you know. And it made me start to wonder who might be some of your favorite lyricists, um, since you're also a lyricist. Oh, my God. Like, all of them. There's, there's so many to pull from. I think my favorite punk rock lyricist of all time is Allison Wolf from, like, Bratmobile and Cold Cold Hearts. Like, yeah, yeah. Just, just, like, someone who could just really sit down and, like, turn a phrase. And um, a, a few times I've asked her about her song lyrics. She'll just be like, oh, well, that part just came from the back of a postcard I found at a thrift store. You know what I'm saying? Oh, cool. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, yeah, or like she'll just like in the middle of a song quote the wild things, you know, or like, right. re-reference her own lyrics. Like, I've just always been really, really fascinated uh, with the way I've always been fascinated with her writing in that way or her lyricism. So she's great, and definitely, and her delivery, her vocal delivery is so perfect for the kind of writing that she does too. Just the the performance and the words go so well together with her. Totally. Exactly. Like, and so like, yeah, just like the whole, like the whole kind of sound score that goes with it. I'm always obsessed with that. And plus also like, you know, just being obsessed with poetry and lyrics and stuff like that. There's always things that just, you know, you know, those kind of lyrics or like those snippets of lyrics where you're just like, you really do wish someone could just publish a sentence. Like, who are are there any contemporary poets you really like, like people who are working today who are alive? I always I'm looking for recommendations for new poets I haven't heard of. Like I like Morgan Parker a lot. I haven't heard of Morgan um, Parker. That um she does that one and I I talk about this book. People are so sick of hearing me talk about this book, but it's like the last great book of poetry I read that I was really into. It's um it's like there are things more beautiful than Beyonce, I think. But okay. she's also, there's a new text. I think she has one called Magical Negro that I haven't picked up yet. She probably has like five, ten different books out right now, and I'm just not even thinking about it. Um, there's that. Um, there's, um, who else? I like Tommy Pico's work. He lived in New York for a long time, but I think he's in California now. Um, there's There's them. There's also... There's, oh, there's Denez Smith. His work's really dope. Um, what are you like, like, as a daily reader? Like, like in terms of not, not, not your work when you're having to revise or edit, but what are your reading habits like? Um, I kind of read a lot of stuff that I've, like, read before. I search for old text, um, like weird zines. I like, I like just kind of like burst of things. 
I think a lot of my flash fiction, as they call it, style that I kind of write in was just like my favorite thing to read growing up was like those Reader Digest kind of oh, yeah. snippet or the anecdotal writing, just like this quick, concise thing that you could always carry with you, you know? Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, that rule kind of like the shorter the word count, the more profound you better fucking be really quick. And I kind of like mm-hmm. that kind of, it creates this kind of improvisational fucking technique you have to have with everything. And, you know, I study theater, so it's like, I don't know. I, I think all the literature I do has a strong kind of, you know, um, kind of a strong background or a strong affinity to drama. Intensely. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I like the idea of improvisational as well, like in composition. Do you do you do you feel like you write improvisationally and like if like how much do you edit once you have a first draft down? How close is your first draft to the what you turn into, say, to your editor at, at FSG? I don't know if there's a way to like kind of chart it. But see when I say improv, like I mean something I mean like in true theater tradition. Like some people say improv and they're like, Oh, that just means I get to do what I want like no, like, the school of theater I'm from, it's, like, improv is the most holy because that's where you see the the sum total of, like, your honed fucking, like, craft. Like, you have to practice in improv, right? Or, like, yeah. Martha Graham would say, like, there's so little time to be born to the instant. Like, when you go to improv, it's, like, you're supposed to, like, have, like, the sum total of, like, all your years of training, all your years of craft, all your years of building intuition, where you go in and it's like like this fucking celestial fugue state god damn it like you are there to mm. spit like mm. so um yeah i think yes i definitely bring that sense of improv to my practice but it's not like when i say improv i don't mean i'm just throwing paint on the wall and seeing what sticks it's like this is like like this is my holy divine writer shit that I'm like yeah, yeah. fucking like fucking throw down for you. In writing, when I say improv, I mean like in writing, I mean this is writing for me is a solitary is a solitary practice. So in that sense, yeah. But like improving with other people, I don't really I don't know, when do you write with other people? That's this is actually a question I've been asking myself lately too, like how would mm. collaborative writing look? And I don't mean just in like, oh, we have a literary magazine where everybody writes their own thing. Like, if you paired yeah. with another art author to write something, like how? There's a reason why people don't do it. I'm sure. It's I mean, I I can't it. imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine doing it. I mean, the writer. Yeah, I can think of a couple collaborative novels. I mean, there's one that Stephen King wrote with Peter Straub, right? And I don't, from what I remember reading about it, they would just, each would write a chapter and go back and forth, and then they both took on the job of editing that first draft together. But honestly, that sounds like torture to me. You better be really close to someone, and y'all either better have, like, a real starkly different style that super, super complements each other, or you really better just have, like, that same fucking voice. Like, yeah, there's a reason why that is virtually unheard of. Would you but try fuck it? it? I might be down to try. Yeah. Who is a writer that you know that you feel you might be able to try collaborating with like that? Oh, I think they're all dead. <laughs> uh oh. How's that gonna work? 
I know. The people I'd really like want to write a book with are like totally all dead, so there's like um there's a quickness and like a jitteriness to some of your prose in the book. Like it like a like um that gives me when I'm reading it a feeling kind of like anxiety. Not in a bad way, but a kind of anxious, jumpy feeling. Do you do you have do you suffer from anxiety? Oh, or just as much like, as anybody yeah, else on the planet does. You do, okay. What's yeah, what's the relationship yeah. like for you between anxiety and writing? Like do you find writing is therapeutic to your anxiety or does anxiety make writing worse as a practice for you? Does it make it more difficult and, and painful? I think it can definitely, I definitely think that it can be all of those things. Um, you know, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole spectrum. Like what, you know, art can do or not do. I will say, and people intensely disagree with me on this, but I will say I have understood more about myself from writing than I ever have sitting in a fucking therapy office. Mm-hmm. Um, that much I know, like, to be true. Um, but it's also, I don't know, I think um, I think I kind of have, like, that sort of generalized anxiety, you know, but then also, like, in creating you know, kind of work that you would, you know, quote, unquote, call brave or trying to pierce kind of this wall of perception. There is that kind of general anxiety you have where you're just like, oh, my God, is the art I'm making ruining my personal life? And oh. if the answer is yes, I think you might actually be on to something. So <laughs> I think <laughs> I think it's all kind of a like a, a weird like give and take, um, but I definitely um, um, I I do have like I think just you know a healthy amount of anxiety, but nothing ever crippling enough to like stop me in my tracks. That that much I can say. Has writing about relationships? I mean, this book is is a series of of relationship portraits in a way. Has writing about relationships, and, and, and in your other novels as well, this occurs, right? Um, but has writing about relationships uh, helped you to kind of become more conscious in your own relationships? Like to think about like interpersonal, like boyfriend stuff? Um, I mean, I guess. But then also it's like I'm just, I'm like, I'm 38, about to be 39. More, so, I mean, more or less I am a middle-aged punk rock person. And so I just think like, you know, Age in general makes you more conscious of these things. And, you know, you look back on things that seemed so harrowing before and you were like, that actually wasn't a big deal. And then things that you took really lightly that you were just like, that's kind of devastating. And I don't know, there's no way to have a more 3D perspective on it. Like, I'll say it like this, like the tones, the tones of my book become very more like, I don't know, more sure-footed in a way. Because there's something that's Mm -hmm. like, Johnny, would you love me if my dick were bigger? Like, the voice in that book would not be acceptable of a 40-year-old, you know? Right, There's right. the reason why I'm glad, I'm so glad I wrote that book in my 20s, because that's, that's when you should be able, that's when that voice should be its loudest and most authentic, right? And so yeah. what you have by the time you get to 100 boyfriends is, 
something that's really omni-reflective, as it should be when you get to your 40s and you have, you know, a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of, you know, in, in, intuition that's built upon itself and, you know, just kind of like the emotional strength to do it. So, And with, with, with age, with getting a little older, you can apply that stuff to the writing, I think, in like uh, like an unselfconscious way. Like it's not like you're saying, I'm going to use my toolbox of maturity to like infuse my writing. It's just inside you. No, exactly. Like exactly. I'm really curious about the relationship between like the sex drive and the drive to be creative. And the book obviously is full of sex. And I wonder, like, they both seem like kind of like creative acts to me like wanting to have as much sex as possible and wanting to um, create as much of, of whichever art you're working on as possible. Do you like, do you ever think about that connection between like libido and creativity? No, for sure. I definitely, I definitely think about it all the time, but it's just like, I don't know. It's like, I think any person that's passionate is like kind of passionate about like what are pleasures of life? You know what I'm saying? It's like, Food, sex, literature, like, philosophy, it's like, like, why else are we, like, humans, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, what, yeah. you know, like, very pleasurable things that we all are, like, trying to figure out, you know, at, as par- as pleasurable as they can be perilous, you know? So, yeah, I don't, I don't think very, very deeply about it, or I don't, it's not something I look very deep into the crystal ball to, like see the connection, you know, and um, also, you know, just like art and things we do in general, like, I know, I think like, I am a gay man, I am, it is very likely that I'm not going to have like physical children. And so now as I become older, I feel like the things I make become this way that I can chart time. And I can definitely like, you know, account for the years that have happened like you know i've been in california almost like 20 years and like sometimes i feel like so much of it is a blur because so mm-hmm. much was happening but i can look at a younger lover's record or i can look at a zine or i can look at stuff and be like oh that i was living at that warehouse i was like having problems with this boy i was you know what i mean like yeah. so i think is the word ebenezer's i don't think the word is ebenezer don't quote me on that but these kind of things that, like, kind of, you know, you know, they, they're they these milestones that kind of, like, mark where you are or where you were. Yeah. And they are that creations very that, you, that you, they're creations you put out into the world, like a child as well. Yeah, for sure. You, you also, you know, you're talking about, like, being in California for so long. In the book, there are a couple of trips back to Alabama for various characters, and I just like the descriptions of the landscape um, in like the, the story where, 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 where the narrator goes back to get his um, father's like winter coat and his guns. It's so, it's so beautiful and loving the way that you write about the landscape. And I'm kind of like, uh, do you, do you romanticize the place that you come from in, in some ways? Like, how do you feel about Alabama? Um, just sort of like, you know, mood-wise or geographically or like, you know, visually when you think about it today? You know, it's so, um, it's so, I don't know. 
I don't know. I think what I, if you see me, what looks like romanticizing is just probably after you in a totally different place for so long, like you really get an idea of what a place really looks like, you know? And I was just like, after being in California so long, the, the Bay area is so fucking different than the Appalachian foothills. Like the Appalachian yeah. foothills is such a specific landmass and like i don't know i forget that i just grew up around you know like mountains don't even look like that here it's just like they're like these rolling grassy things where it's like i come from a place that's like it's like rocks these deep rocks and yeah get like sometimes there's just there'll be water shooting out of it and just this expanse of land and just like i don't know like rivers like a river as opposed to a big bay and also, more starkly, seasons, you know, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like that place looks so different depending on what time of year it is. Where sometimes I do think that, like, because the seasons blur together here so much that I have, like, a whole different sense of time or temporality being out here, like, as opposed to there. So, really, um I think if you hear, if you, when you see me like talking about those things, I think it's just because like just now in my middle age, I've just now woken up to what it actually looks like. I wanted to talk a little bit about your work as a choreographer and a dancer. Um, I'd imagine that more than a lot of the other things that you do, certainly more than writing that COVID and quarantine has, has, has really impacted that side of, of your art, the, 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 the dance world stuff. Have you been able to keep up that practice in any way during all this stuff? Well, I made the, there's like this video, this like video journal series I make called 100 Boyfriends Mixtape. And that always has like, you know, movement and writing and weird shit in there. So kind of like that, uh, but actually, I had the last piece, the last dance piece I made was January of 2020, you know, which mm-hmm. is like, well, there was this San Francisco alternative dance festival called Fresh Festival. It went on for about 10 years. Um, the lady who ran it recently passed away, and it's been really sad over here because she was, she was really the mother of that. Um, what was her name? Yeah, I remember... I, um, Kathleen Hermes, um, Kathleen Hermesdorf. Sorry, I interrupted you, please. No, 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 it's totally fine. But so I remember, like, my dance, like, it was always, every year around this time, I would be making something for that, because it was, like, this month-long dance festival. And so I haven't done that this year. I think I definitely feel it in my body. But also, like, I definitely, I feel everything in my body. I've spent the last couple of years dancing, or writing, and I haven't like, I haven't danced much. In fact, in the last three years, I've gained a hundred pounds, and I'm just like, fuck. And I'd like mm. be looking back, and I was like, I hey, remember when I used to spend like eight to ten hours a day in a dance in a dance room in a dance classroom. So that <laughs> that's definitely something that um, like when you dance, you definitely think about it. But then also, I don't know, I come from such, like, I come from such that, like, that post-post-postmodernist kind of dance world. 
it was never really about me doing like a bunch of purees or whatever in the first place. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But I do. I am always thinking of how do I unite, kind of unite these things. Um, right before this all happened, I was trying to get money to. Um, there's this Sylvia Plath short story called Johnny Panic in the Bible of Dreams, and I've been trying to turn that into a dance piece probably somewhere around six years, and I was, like, writing grants for it and looking for money, but then all this happened, and so that kind of stopped. But I think what the next part of that will be trying to build that, trying to build that and making that a more virtual project because it's been too long and I just need to get it done. I've been dreaming about it too long and I need to get it done. Yeah. What about that story made you feel that it could translate to dance well? It's essentially a sci-fi story or like a morality story. And like she, it's her only, it's, it's from, it's one of the short stories she wrote before the bell jar. And obviously it's about kind of, I think her experience, it's about this person who works in this mental health facility, but the boss is actually the one person who runs the facility is actually this like this godlike figure called Johnny Panic. And there's places where they like talk about worshiping him, but also keep treating him as the head psychiatrist. And the, the person sneaks into the mental health facility at night and copies down the dreams of people who suffer from like depression, anxiety, all this type of stuff. And at the mm -hmm. end one night, Johnny Panic catches them, like, recording the dreams of people and takes them away. It's super fucking rich. And I just, and I, it's, like, kind of like this, like, kind of beatnik tone to it. And I mm. just think it was, like, I love when authors make fascinating diversions. And so it was, um, yeah, it was, um, there's something about Sylvia Plath's science fiction short story that's always really struck me. Plus, it just has a cool fucking name. So, Great name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've always wanted to turn it into a dance. It sounds like an early punk rocker like pseudonym. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. Like, how could we not fucking, yeah. A Hundred Boyfriends mixtape. I saw one of those on the Criterion Collection app, and that's great. And I want to, if there are more, I want to see them, but I don't know how. Are they, are you putting them out? Well, the first one is on Naked Sword. Like when I, when I did, I want your love, like that indie movie the or porn. whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like the company Naked Sword, like kind of liked the job that I did. And they were like, do you have any scripts that you like to show? And so I did 100 Boyfriends mixtape number one with them. So that's on Naked Sword. Number two that you saw was originally done for A Day Without Art. It was commissioned by the Whitney Day Without Art, um, mm. the visual aids. My okay. friend told me it's like the number one, it's like the number one comedy on the Criterion channel right now. Is it really? Yeah. I was still about that. It's great. I love that. Yeah. Well, I really, yeah, because I want to see more of those. I think they're great. Who are your who are your like most direct influences in terms of choreography? Like oh, okay. Moves? So I don't you know, I never really thought much about choreography. I just liked reading about the personal lives of all the dancers. Like mm. there's like the early moderns are, are all of course really amazing to read. Like read about like like Isadora Duncan and like Ruth St. Dennis and like you know 
yeah. Ted, Ted Stone or whatever. They're really funny people to read about. And like Martha Graham's his history is like funny to read about. But you know, when I got into, when I started taking contemporary um, at Cal State East Bay, they of course like focused us on all like the Judson dancers. Like it was like Yvonne Rayner. Right. Who also, funnily enough, she was also another fucking filmmaker, you know, from the Bay. Her stuff I clued into the most. I think it was around that era that I got obsessed with judging them that I started making free jazz. Oh, I love that film. It feels Judson-y now that I think of it. Yeah. Free jazz. Like I can see the the Judson people's influence in it. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I was was taking classes. My friend was taking classes at Anna Halperin's. And so I went to a couple classes up there, too, just to have, like, you know, my full, like, fucking moment. So I was doing this, but also I had danced in, like, I was in these, like, African-Haitian companies, these contemporary, like, African companies for, like, eight years. One company I was in for eight years, um, I danced with them on and off, but I was still training with, like, the West African company here and... You know, I had a good little time with that spurt of, with that spurt of that. Like, I went farther than most, I'll say. And it was really, yeah, it didn't feel, it was a lot, there was a lot to, like, pick through and go through and be from, you know. Um, I also remember during that time, I got a guest, I was a guest in Keith Hennessy's Turbulence. And it was just kind of like he um he's very like more like Grand Union, the post Judson thing. He was very Grand Union influenced. He's this queer male choreographer from here. And I remember Turbulence was just like this crazy free for all. Again, I think even now, like I don't think you could get away with doing something like Turbulence because it was just like we'd just be naked in the audience, we'd be like peeing on each other on stage. Right. Like, like, just like that weird 60s, like, here's a bunch of weirdos improving for, like, three hours at a time type yeah, of performances. Yeah. Like, just, like, crazy shit. Like, that was, oh, that was really fun. It sounds really I forgot fun. what the question was. It was about choreography. Well, I mean, yeah, in a really in a really general sense, it was, like, who are your most direct influences on your choreo? And I mean just, like, maybe not choreo so much as, like, movement. Like, your favorite sort of movements um oh. where where do they come from yeah like in there yeah so and my friend one of it's like the simone forty book she was in that whole quick um what was the name of that goddamn book i can't even think of it it's like movement something that was like that was totally a big influence but then also oh here it is um simone forty's handbook in motion like okay. kind of like this like this zine and this dancing and uh, that's really cool. But also, yes, of relatingness. When I was studying Yvonne Rayner, um, when I was a young dance student, I saw both Christina talking pictures and a film about a woman who, and she talked about the idea of a choreo movie, right? And you know, Yvonne Rayner was a huge to bring it back. My, uh, Yvonne Rayner was a huge Maya Duran devotee. Right. right. That's kind of where I started with the idea for 100 Boyfriends Mixtape, because I remember when I originally was in I Want Your Love, it was very like, just like kind of like this weird feature. 
not a weird feature, but it was like a definitely like a dramatic feature. And I remember I wanted to do something like it, but I wanted it. I wanted more glitchy, and I wanted it more cut up, and I wanted it to be more sparse. I didn't get to do that with the first one because the producer at Naked Sword kind of wanted it to be a more traditional thing. And then the second one was just, like, pure dialogue. But the third one, yeah. the third Boyfriends mixtape I just put out, How I Spent My Summer Vacation, is closer to what I wanted in the beginning. So I remember that was based off of, like, me reading about choreo movies from, like, Yvonne Rainer. There's a lot of those on um, Canopy, the public library video app. I don't know if you know that, but just for people who might listen to this, you can find Devon Rayner films on there. They're so cool. No, for sure. Like, but I think that that's so, my next, you know, like goal. Where can I find Hundred Boyfriends Mixtape Part Three to watch? Oh, I would have to email it to you because it's it's only playing. I played at the Tom of Finland Art Fair. It played at the Leslie Lowen Gala. And now um, this place, housing, the housing gallery in New York is like showing it. So it's only it only has like kind of like these gallery museum engagements right now. Gotcha. Well, I'd love to see it if you feel like something at some point. Um, I really like Yvonne Rayner's memoir, "Feelings Aren't Feelings Aren't Facts." Is that what it was called? Feelings Aren't Facts. No, totally. Yeah. Again, yeah. Like I did that right when I was in early dance, early dance school. If you could recommend like one or two books about about dance, be it theory or history or just fun anecdotal stuff across the spectrum for people who don't know much about dance, what would you tell them to read? I would tell them to read Dance Imagery for Technique and Performance um, by Eric Franklin. What's that? What's that like? It's literally just, um, it's going over kind of like, um, like just kind of like the, uh, the poetics, the poetics of movement, but like kind of like with deep, like anatomical, like description, like really Mm -hmm. like what it means when someone is saying like plie, releve, and there's pictures of like the body and movement, but there'll be like a fan under it, giving you the idea of how it should move or They'll draw a person simulating some type of movement, but they'll draw their arms as leaves, and you'll oh, see the patterns cool, yeah. of how the wind is moving through the leaves as to how really just all these kind of intense, fucked-up metaphysical things that dancers should be thinking about, though they don't always teach us that. So I think it's a terribly fascinating book. It sounds great. It sounds um, but, very It's very in the, into technique and and sort of like the physicality of it. What about a book to complement that that's more about, like, the life? Oh, I think Isadora Duncan's My Life. Isadora Duncan's, like, memoir. Like, that is some, like, like, seriously, like, she is, like, the first fucking horrible art Karen to ever live. But goddamn, if it's not a fascinating (laughs) fucking story. It's a fascinating fucking story. It's That's a great book. I have read that. I love that book. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then I just wanted to know, so yeah, I, I saw somewhere else that you were talking about like going back to the academic life and getting a PhD maybe. Is that is that true that you're thinking about that? Yeah, totally. But I like, I'm such a fuck up, which is probably why I need to rethink that dream. I like totally missed my PhD application by like 15 days because I wrote the due date 
down wrong eight months ago and never oh, get back up shit. on it. So <laughs> fuck. Well, when you do, if you do go, what do you? What is it going to be? What's it going to be in? You do so many different things. Uh, I was going to apply to the performance studies program at UC Berkeley. Uh-huh. Okay. So a place where you could integrate a few of the different strands of what you do then? Yeah, totally. And I think I could, you know, but like my advisor told me, she was like, girl, you've been in school for 20 years. You can take another fucking like year off. And then, so I'm just going to spend this year like writing my thesis or like, you know, padding my thesis. So I come in there with, you know, a more strongest thesis. It's all a Okay, thanks so much for listening, and thanks again to Brontes for being my guest on this episode. If you haven't already, I really, really recommend that you pick up 100 Boyfriends today. It's, it's just great. You can find more Apology, including the magazine and other episodes of this podcast and show notes and some merch at apologymagazine.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you would review, subscribe, rate, whatever the stuff that the platforms ask you to do for free labor to help me go up in their algorithms. That would be, um, that'd be great. And um, I recorded this episode from my home in Mount Washington, Los Angeles, while talking with Brontez at his home in Oakland, California. It was edited by Justin Geller in Philadelphia and facilitated by Lars Kreslins in another part of Philadelphia. And the music is Bach, arranged and performed by Cyrus Garamani, who until recently has been in the Bay Area, but I believe is now returning to Los Angeles. Um, thanks a lot. See you next time.